Welcome to the America's Quarterly Podcast. I'm Brian Winter. Peruvians seem intent on smashing the status quo in the country's upcoming presidential election. The big question is what comes next? I feel we're on the brink of a very significant change in Peru. I feel like we're very close to choosing an authoritarian again. I think it's not surprising given the fact that when society is in crisis, they tend to look for whoever promises order. Over the last 15 years or so, Peru has been something of a mystery to me. It's consistently had some of Latin America's worst politics and some of its best economic performance. Even when presidents were resigning or being impeached or going to jail, and by the way, all these things happened in the last couple of years, the economy still did okay, sometimes great. In fact, GDP frequently grew at rates well above the Latin American average, and poverty fell faster in Peru than almost anywhere else. But the question has always been, how long can that last? Will there come a point where the dysfunction in Lima finally catches up with the rest of the economy? And you look at this election now coming up in less than three weeks' time, and you wonder if this is that point. It's an extremely fragmented field right now as we record this. There are 20 candidates still in the running, none of them polling better than 15% or so of the prospective vote. There's a real log jam for the second place. And 30% of Peruvians say they will not support any candidate or they don't know who to vote for. Meanwhile, I think it's fair to describe the situation or the mood as being extremely anti-status quo. Makes sense. Peru has had one of the most difficult pandemics in the whole world, the second highest death rate per capita, and extreme lockdowns that contributed to an economic downturn of 11.6% in 2020. That's well worse than the Latin American average of about 7.5. So this sure sounds to me like a recipe for a wild card in this election. It makes it very unpredictable. Or does it? That's what we're going to try to get into in today's edition of the podcast. I'm joined by Andrea Moncada. Andrea is a political analyst and coordinator of the opinion section of El Comercio, a leading Peruvian newspaper. She also teaches politics and international relations at ESAN University in Lima. Andrea, thank you for joining me today on the AQ podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. So Andrea, first question for you. I mean, I tried to set the stage there a little bit, but talk to us about the mood right now in Peru. I mean, it's been a really tough year everywhere, but it's been especially tough there. Are people looking to lash out in this election? How do you see it? So the race itself has taken its time to really get going. At the beginning of the campaign, at the end of last year, people really weren't that interested in it. But I think as uh, the weeks have gone by and the pandemic has gotten more and more dire. Uh, we're in the middle of a second wave and it doesn't seem to be letting up. Definitely, there's this feeling that there are sectors of the population that really want to go for a rather more extreme options, right? And so this is true both for the left and for the right. So we have, on the case of the right, candidates like Rafael Lopez Aliaga, who is a businessman, but he's also a practicing member of Opus Dei, and he has a lot of very conservative rhetoric around many social issues and a rather authoritarian style. Some have referred to him as the Peruvian Bolsonaro. Do you think that that's the case? I think he's been trying to model himself 
according to Bolsonaro. Also, I think he's rather an admirer of Trump. I think his style is definitely very much to say things that are kind of off the pale. He has a lot of anti-communism speech, which is kind of silly because there's not real communism now in Peru. There hasn't been anything like that in the past 30, 40 years. And so you said that that's kind of the, you know, the strong anti-establishment candidate on the right. Is there kind of a mirror image on the left? So the mirror image would be Johnny Lescano. And Johnny Lescano, I think, is really a surprising figure for me in these elections because he has been a congressman for the past 20 years. He's been in Congress since 2001. And he's never really been this leftist, you know, radical politician. But he's suddenly become this figure that certain kind of left is rallying around. I think left that wants far more state control over the economy, a left that has a more nationalist uh, rhetoric as well, a left that is against mining. So he's he's sort of the other side of the of the spectrum. So right now, as we speak, it looks like polls are putting those two figures that you just described first and second, right? I mean, Lascano somewhat comfortably in first place, and then Lopez Aliaga at the top of a very clustered, very close field that kind of looks like it could break either way. Yes. Yes, that's right. So let's talk a little bit more about Lascano, though. I mean, for those kinds of policies that you just described, I mean, is he, you know, the kind of the classic question that gets asked of Latin American leftists, is he more in the model of, you know, like a Maduro? I mean, is he part of the anti-democratic left or is this more a, you know, a Lula type figure where he's ultimately democratic and comes in and, and doesn't shake the economy up that much? I think it's difficult to say. If we'd have to compare, I think he would be sort of a kind of Ollanta Humala, but in 2006, right? Because remember, uh, Ollanta Humala, who was our, he's our former president, he campaigned twice. And the first time he campaigned, he ran under a very nationalistic, very state-centered platform. And although he was very close with Venezuela at that time, Lescano doesn't carry that burden. He's never really expressed any sort of admiration or sympathy with Maduro or with any of the other pink-tied presidents that the region has had in the past 20 years, right? So he's really very unique in that way. I think he's been able to really channel this anti-establishment feeling that is brewing in Peru, particularly after the pandemic and its economic and social effects. And that anti-establishment vibe that you're referring to on both sides, it, it makes all the sense in the world because of the experience that the country's had, not just over the last 12 months, but the general sentiment of antipolitica, of anti-politics, which has always been very strong in Peru. But I, I want to go back just a moment to the comparison that you raised with Ollanta Humala, because I, I was hoping that you would mention him, because when I talk with people right now, investors who look at Peru, they kind of roll their eyes a little bit at Lascano and they say, well, yeah, he sounds kind of radical, but look what happened to Humala, right? This guy who had sounded very radical, especially during his first campaign, and then came into office and was sort of one way or another, ended up supporting more or less the same macroeconomic framework that has been in place for the last 20 plus years. 
do you see any possibility that the same thing might happen with Lascano? To an extent. But I think Peru today looks very different from what it did when Ollanta Humala was president. To start with political factors, right? Humala had a parliamentary majority when he was elected. And his party, at the beginning at least, was fairly cohesive. And so he didn't really have to deal with a lot of political pressures from many different fronts. But now, if Lescano were to win, he'd still be facing a very fragmented Congress. And not just a fragmented Congress, but also a Congress that has proved in the past year that it has turned very populist. Tensions and confrontation between the parliament and the executive have been at an all-time high in the past few years. And so he would have to deal with all these different pressures, would probably have a hard time carrying out his policies. But at the same time, the business sector, this uh, sector that you allude to that had a lot of influence in checking Ollantumala in 2011, I don't think they have the same ability to influence politics anymore. That has a lot to do with the fact that we're not growing economically in the same way as we used to. So before, I think it was a lot easier to defend the current economic model because it was, it seemed to be, you know, resulting for the country, right? There was steady GDP growth. There was a steady decline in poverty. But that isn't the case anymore. So I think Lescano will face a very fragmented political scene. Like He will have to deal with a lot of different political actors that Ollanta didn't have to deal with anymore. But at the same time, I think he'll be a little bit less pressured by our economic right-wing sector. So it's not a recipe for a leader who could come in and do anything he wants, but what he may try to do could look more radical than what Umala ever attempted, just because the aura around the economic policies has faded somewhat. Yeah, that's right. Andrea, I want to briefly go back to November of last year, where Peru had three presidents in just a week. How does that political crisis play into this election? I mean, is it having an impact on this race's dynamics at all? Or is it kind of another <laughs> forgotten chapter of dysfunction that is now kind of in the past? I think the political crisis we had last November has made it even harder for people to choose a candidate in this election. And we're talking about a country that has always had a really hard time picking its president every five years. So former President Vizcarra's impeachment on the grounds of moral incapacity, it was seen as by many as a sham carried out by a populist irresponsible Congress, which in my opinion it was, but this was also the same Congress we voted for in 2018 after Vizcarra dissolved the previous one. And of course, Vizcarra was himself the vice president to Pedro Pablo Kaczynski, who had resigned under you know threat from a similar uh, episode with Congress just some time before. Yeah, exactly, which made it a little ironic. But that decision was actually really popular with the population, the decision to dissolve Congress, because back then it was controlled by Fuerza Popular, which is the party that's leaded by Keiko Fujimori. And they had a very confrontational attitude towards Vizcarra. And so there was this real expectation that things would improve with this new Congress. But as we know now, <laughs> it actually got worse. 
And I don't think that any of the political parties that currently make up the current Congress came out of that crisis unscathed. I think the population feels that every single one of them had some sort of role to play. And so there's this general widespread dissatisfaction with our political class and every single candidate running today is seen in one way or another as corrupt or incompetent. So Lescano might be the front runner right now, but he only has around 15% of the stage of the race. So let's talk a little bit about corruption. You had a scandal there recently, and we've seen versions of this elsewhere in Latin America, but talk to me about the scandal over the, the vaccines. So corruption has been the main issue concerning Peruvians for years now, ever since the Lavajato scandal broke out, right? And there's been this feeling that our political class in general, that every single politician we've ever had has been involved in one way or another, which they really actually have. Every single democratically elected president since 2001 has been involved and is now under judicial investigation. And so the vaccine scandal, I think, was just sort of the final nail in the coffin for many Peruvians. For there to have been about 480 civil service workers who have been vaccinated in secret, including the then Minister of Health and then the then Minister of Foreign Affairs, and including Vizcarra himself, who was seen for such a long time as this anti-corruption champion, you know, the president who was willing to take on the Fujimoristas, for Peruvians, that was just a national tragedy. And so this disillusionment is at an all-time high. We've talked so much about politics, but I, I want to step away from, you know, the names and the mess in Lima. What does polling and just your conversations with ordinary people tell you about what Peruvians would like the next government to focus on? What are, what are the main concerns right now among voters? The first one was definitely the pandemic. Many Peruvians, including myself, we feel that the government has really had a hard time reacting to the way that the COVID pandemic has developed in Peru. I think it was understandable that the pandemic sort of took everyone by surprise, especially in a country like ours where public health system is really, really underdeveloped. But the government also had three or four months after the first wave to really react a bit quicker to the crisis, but they didn't. So we've had a massive shortage of oxygen, for example. So that's definitely one thing. And then the second issue is definitely corruption. But the thing is, I think people just don't believe that anything can really be done anymore. Vizcarra was seen as a sort of light at the end of the tunnel in some ways. He presented himself as very tough on corruption, but he he also turned out to be a disappointment. And so people right now, I, I think they just want to survive. <laughs> I think they just want a president or a, or a political class that's focused on them and on their welfare and to really focus on governing. Like I said, Peru's economy was hit especially hard last year. You had, you know, one of the region's toughest lockdowns. Plus, there were some restrictions on mining companies resulting from social conflicts. Uh, that impaired production of copper, of which Peru is the second largest exporter of globally. Um, what economic recovery plans do the candidates offer? And, and what do you think Peru really needs you know, to dig out of that very, very deep hole that it dug in 2020? The proposals for economic recovery are not very specific. 
and that goes for both the candidates on the left and the candidates on the right. There's a lot of discussion about fostering um, job creation. For example, Veronica Mendoza, she talks a lot about publicly funding infrastructure to create jobs. There are also proposals to inject money into small and medium-sized companies in order to help them survive the effects of the pandemic. But that's already been done, so we're, we're not, it's not entirely clear where the money would come from for that and also how that would differ in any way from what's already been done with a plan that we had last year called Reactiva Peru. But I do believe that private investment is key, and I do think that we would have to find a way to make these mining projects restart again because they have been a very significant part of GDP growth. None of the candidates that are right now running are really offering or focusing on that. Another aspect for me that I think has kind of gone under the radar is incorporating more workers into the formal economy. So Peru right now has around 70% informality, and the pandemic had made it really, really clear that we have a workforce that is largely without any sort of social safety net. And there's many economists and public health experts who think that that's one of the reasons why the pandemic hit so hard in Peru. Yes. I think if we don't address informality, which is something that's been in the public agenda for a very long time now, and it's an issue that comes up every so often, but nothing's really ever done about it because it's seen as an ideological issue. So if you were to say, for example, that labor laws need to be more flexible in order to employ more workers, then that is seen by many as a threat to labor rights. But in reality, these workers don't have any rights precisely because they are part of the informal economy. And so the discussion tends to sort of fall into this ideological trap and it's very hard to move past that gridlock. Andrea, as we move toward the end here, you know, we're not going to have time to get to every single candidate in the race. Like I said, there's there's more than 20, but we've really only talked at length about Lescano, the candidate on the left, Lopez Aliaga, the candidate on the right. I just want to go through and do almost like a lightning round to hear your descriptions of some of these folks. I mean, you did briefly just mention Veronica Mendoza. She's another figure on the left, right? What can you tell us about her? So she's been around in politics for a while now, and I think she's a bit more popular with a more younger, a more urban voter. She doesn't poll as well as Lescano, for example, in the more rural parts of the country. She has also a lot of progressive policies, so her proposals include gender rights, for example. She's a bit more of a progressive left, in social terms, really, because in economic terms, she still has this very, what I call, 20th century recipe for state intervention in the economy. She's still very focused on nationalizing industry or the state taking control over certain sectors. George Forsyth, he's a more centrist figure. He's got an interesting biography. This is a guy who's in his 30s. He he used to be a, a professional soccer player, a goalie, even played a couple games in goal for the Peruvian national team. And he seems to be polling pretty well. I mean, there's a chance that he could give Lopez Aliaga a, a run at his money for that number two spot. Yeah, I think he's seen as the classic outsider. He presents as this non-politician politician as someone who's not been involved in party politics or any corruption scandals, 
a young person who uh, would bring dynamism into Peruvian politics. I personally feel that's not the case. I think he's really just running on the fact that he's not been a politician. Keiko Fujimori, of course, was uh, she made the runoff twice uh, in recent elections, lost both times, still present, but doesn't seem to have the same force that her her family once had. Does that sound right? Yeah, Keiko, I think she lost the vote. <laughs> I don't think she'll move past the 7% that she's polling right now. She also faces a very strong anti-vote. In fact, I think one of the main political forces in this country today is anti-Fujimorismo. And it was anti-Fujimorismo that prevented her from winning in 2016 and in 2011. So she has a core voter base, but it doesn't extend beyond what she's already polling. Finally, Andrea, kind of the million-dollar question. As you look at this field and also just look at the general recovery of Peru as it tries to come out of this pandemic, how optimistic are you about the country's future? Not optimistic. I feel we're on the brink of a very significant change in Peru. I feel like we're very close to choosing an authoritarian again. I think it's not surprising, given the fact that when a society is in crisis, they tend to look for whoever promises order, and democratic concerns tend to be put on the back burner. And also, I think people just, they just want someone who will ensure them in any way that they will have some form of capacity for survival. You know, that that has a lot in common with things that we see elsewhere in, in the region and throughout the Americas and in the world right now. We'll keep our eyes closely uh, trained on this election result. Andrea, thank you so much for joining us on the AQ podcast. Thank you so much. It's been great. Thank you for listening to the America's Quarterly podcast. You can read more at americasquarterly.org. Finally, if you enjoyed the episode, Please leave us a review, give us a rating, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The America's Quarterly Podcast is produced by Brendan O'Boyle and Leonie Rawls. America's Quarterly is an independent, not-for-profit publication of America's Society and the Council of the Americas.